There's a model of heaven down here below. It's a picture of glory sublime. With the glorious body of Christ our dear Lord, live here on creation of thine. Our Savior has given the sweet sacrifice for a bitter and sinful old tree. You hung between heaven and earth, my dear Lord. Increase my devotion to Just gives us a glimpse of lovely and marvelous scenes. That heavenly city is calling me home, that wonderful place of my God. Our Savior has given the sweet sacrifice, what a bitter and sinful old tree. You hung between heaven and earth, my dear Lord. Increase my devotion to Thee. Oh, what a reunion we'll have that glad day. The face of our God we'll all see. Those loved ones we'll hold in our arms once again. In that wonderful place of our God. Our Savior has given the sweet sacrifice. What a bitter and sinful old tree. You hung between heaven and earth, my dear Lord. Increase my devotion to Thee. The church is that model of heaven for me. I love to be with them and sing. The word to proclaim it delights my poor heart, and we show how the lost may be free. Our Savior has given the sweet sacrifice, what a bitter and sinful old tree. You hung between heaven and earth, my dear Lord, increase my devotion to In this lesson, we're going to take a look at the Jewish roots of the early church. Now, whenever you look at the, the very first Christians being Jews, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise that there was a lot of Jewish roots about the early church. I mean, for example, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, whenever we read that 3,000 Jews became Christians, they were baptized and they became Christians then. So 3,000, that's already a, a lot. And just a few chapters later, you find out that the group of believers uh, in Christ are 5,000. So yes, the early church, it came from Jews. In fact, almost all of the early Christians were Jews themselves. So it makes sense that the early church worship would look a whole lot like Jewish worship. And we're going to see these Jewish roots. However, there's also going to be some differences that we'll kind of notice along the way. So let's take a look at some of these things together. What would it take for your worship to change. Now, I want you to think about that. And, and what I mean by that is just only the appearances. Obviously, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, uh, worshiping someone other than God or worshiping some way that's displeasing to God. That's not what I'm getting at here. Um, what I'm saying is, what would it take for the appearance of your worship to change? Now, this might be kind of just on the outside type thing. Um, you know, for example, 
Um, it has taken a worldwide pandemic, hasn't it, in order for our worship all to change at least somewhat. I mean, let's face it, church services, worship services right now don't look the same like they did a year ago even. Well, let me also kind of illustrate it with a little bit more of a, uh, of a humorous example than what we're uh, dealing with right now. Several years back, and in fact, it was kind of early on after I started uh, preaching here, uh, there was one of our young girls, and some of you might know this story already, but there was one of our young girls, and she came into the auditorium one time, and she started counting seats. Now, I love it from my perspective because I was kind of just uh, able to, to take a, a look, at, and I was able to see her coming in and notice what was taking place all along. But I saw this young girl, she came in, she started counting seats, and she realized that someone was in her seat. In fact, she said to uh, uh, those of you who, who know uh, our brother Kenneth, she said to him that you're in my seat. And, you know, he, he looked at her and he, you know, smiled and he responded, you know, very nice about that. And the whole reason for it was we were having vacation Bible school that time. So during vacation Bible school, what we tended to do was the younger kids sat down front and then uh, the, the older adults and stuff kind of sat behind the kids and they still participate. And that's sort of how we, uh, how we used our auditorium at that time. But she counted those seats and she recognized, you're in my seat. That's, that's not where you're supposed to be. That's where I'm supposed to be. We like our traditions, don't we? You know, sometimes we even joke about having assigned seating, but let's face it, we kind of do have a little bit of assigned seating, don't we? I mean, we, we kind of at least just start to settle in in a certain area, and we'd like to, to have our routines that we do, and there's nothing wrong with those things. And the Jews during Jesus's day, um, they had those same types of routines that they had, but yet they recognized something about their faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith in Jesus Christ is going to be life-changing, and it was going to change their worship, and we start to notice that change fairly early on. Let's keep looking. In Acts chapter 2, this is how we see some of this Jewish roots of the church. In verse 1, we read, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, the church hasn't exactly been born just yet. At this point, it's just believers in Jesus, and they're they're followers of him, and they've got this promise that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit just yet. So the day of Pentecost, well, what's that about? Well, we don't really celebrate the day of Pentecost. That's because the people who were right here, they were Jews. And the day of Pentecost, that was a feast that they would celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. Uh, that's what the day of Pentecost was about. Little did they, did they know that on this feast, on this Pentecost, something great was going to happen. And what was going to happen was the church, the first fruits of the church, so to speak, were going to be brought to realization. And among this, this sermon that took place on Pentecost, so it's a Jewish festival, they're going through very Jewish things. But Peter is given an opportunity to preach a sermon. And at some point in his sermon, kind of the climax of his sermon, he says in verses 36 through 37, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with Acts 2.38. 
that where Peter responds of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to repent of their actions. They're supposed to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they too are going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But when you notice what, what Peter says here, he's talking about Israel, and he says, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The church recognized that they couldn't go on living just as they always had. They recognized things change because Jesus has been made Lord and Messiah. This changes a lot about their everyday lives. Yet we still see those roots to Judaism. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 3, we find out that the early church is still going to the temple. In verse 1, we read, One day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, when you look at this, could Peter and John have prayed somewhere else? Yes, they could have. But they went to the temple. Part of that was because that was their routine. That's what they just naturally did. Growing up in Jewish families and being Jews themselves, it made sense that they would go to the temple. Also, this kind of gave them an opportunity to rub elbows or shoulders, so to speak, with those other Jews who were around them who needed to hear this great and powerful message about Jesus Christ. And this particular time, whenever they were going to the temple, they see this man who he can't walk. And he's begging is what's going on. But what Peter and John give him is not money. They don't have any at the time. Well, what they do give him is a miraculous healing in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice how the man responds. Verse 8, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. So all three of them go into the, the temple courts right here. They're still entering into the temple. You know, just because this man found out about the power that is found in the name of Jesus, that didn't deter him from going into the temple. I mean, he wanted to go into the temple, and now he could. And he doesn't just walk into the temple. He's walking, he's jumping, he's praising God. You want to know what worship looks like? It looks like that. It looks like that right there. This man had come to realize how powerful Jesus is, how wonderful God is. It's not enough just to walk. He has to jump. He has to praise God because God has done something great in his life. And sometimes we got to take some time to recognize how great it is of what God has done for us in our lives. And in this particular opportunity, this allows Peter and John to proclaim the message about the powers found in Jesus Christ and the wonderful name that Jesus Christ truly is. And in verse 26, this is what Peter says about him. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. See, God allowed repentance. Peter, John, you know, Peter is kind of known as the apostle to the Jews. And he went to the Jewish people and he shared with them this message, this that God is allowing them to be able to repent to turn to him and to follow him. But you know, we also find out that Paul, who is sometimes called the apostle to the Gentiles, he had the same message. Let's fast forward a few more chapters and let's see a, a similar example of what Paul did. In Acts 14, we read this. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So, here we find out that even the apostle to the Gentiles, as Paul is called, he went to the Jews first. 
Now, this is early on in his uh, ministry, and this is kind of early on in these uh, missionary journeys of Paul, as we oftentimes call them. But yet, Paul continued to do that. Yeah, he went to the Jews first, and he told them the message, gave them an opportunity to repent. But then he also shared with them the message that this repentance and this message is not just for the Jewish nation. It's for all the nations. It's for all of the Gentiles. We also see this in, in a few chapters later in Acts 17. There in, in Acts 17, beginning in verse 1, we read, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So we see that as Paul continues to go on these missionary journeys, he does go throughout the land. And as his, his custom here in, in verse 2, he went into the synagogue and he continued to reason with them. He continued to explain to them something great, something powerful, something so important that is the message they needed to hear. And that is, Jesus is the Messiah. He's raised from the dead. Things have changed. Well, Paul's custom, as we see here, it's the same as much of the early church. He went into the synagogue and he was still with those people who tried to follow what God was doing. But what does that actually look like? You know, what did that look like for them being uh, among the Jewish people? At least from the outside, once again, we, we aren't looking at, at motives or anything, uh, not in this lesson. What we are looking at is, what does their worship just look like from the outside? What did early Christian worship look like? Well, many times what they did is they went into the temple or they went into the synagogue and they read scriptures. I mean, that, that's what we've seen. We've seen that so much. That was the, the main focal point of what the synagogue was, is they had this, this container in which they would have the scriptures and they would pull them out and they would read from them every single week. Now, likely, uh, many people didn't really have Bibles in their own homes at this time. Uh, or, you know, if they had Bibles, it was only kind of portions of them. It's hard for us to even imagine that type of world. But this was a world in which, in order for you to hear the message of, of the Bible, you almost certainly had to go to the synagogue in order to hear that message to be, you know, proclaimed all the time. So, yeah, it was very important to every single week that you would gather together, you would hear a message from the Bible that you needed to be living out. Well, early Christian worship looked like that too. And eventually, early Christian worship, another thing they started doing was they, they added in the Gospels. And they added uh, with the Old Testament scriptures, they added in the, the Gospels and other uh, writings that they had that became our New Testament, of course. And that was helping them to be able to follow God more fully, more faithfully, and to recognize the important part that Jesus Christ played in, in all of this. Well, let's take a look a little bit more about this early Christian worship and what it looked like. In Acts 13, this is the same passage that we looked at this morning, but I want us to, to notice this again because we do find out a few things about the synagogue worship. Verses 14 through 16, we read this. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue went, sent word to them, saying, Brothers, 
If you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now this morning we looked at what that sermon was and, and all that, that Paul said. But notice that Paul with his companions, they enter into the synagogue and they sit down just like everybody else. And, and by the way, if you want to kind of picture what a synagogue was, it was basically a big open area. A lot of times they had columns, more or less for support though, really. But it was a big open area that had kind of uh, a seating I guess we might call it like a built-in bench all the way around, and that is how you would kind of sit, and it was pretty much all around the middle of this room. And then they had a designated area in which they would come up, and in verse 15, they would read from the law and the prophets, and they did this all the time. But what they also did was, after reading from it, then they would also ask if someone had a word of exhortation for the people. You know, they'd ask if somebody has some type of teaching that they want to do. So that is what pay, that is what faithful people did um, whenever they had a synagogue. They gathered together and around God's word. But what would faithful people do without a synagogue? Well, actually, a few chapters later, we get an instance of that. In Acts chapter 16, we read this. On the Sabbath, this is Paul and his companions again, but on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now, this is kind of a, an, an interesting thing right here because we, we find out that, um, okay, they didn't have a synagogue, apparently. If they had a synagogue, they would have gathered in there. But they knew that if they went outside the city gate to the river, they were expecting to find a place of prayer. Isn't that interesting? You know, that's also, by the way, of course, prayers were done in the synagogue as well. But with the synagogue and with these gatherings, we kind of notice another element of worship that is so important. And that is reading scripture is whenever we listen to what God is saying to us. But whenever we pray, whenever we have a place of prayer, that's us talking to God. So Paul and the early church, they went where people were. In this case, they expected them to be down by the river so that they could uh, find that place of prayer and gather with those saints and tell them about Jesus Christ. Because something had changed. They needed to hear it. But we see other examples of people gathering, not just by a river or not just in a synagogue. Let's keep looking. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 17, verse 17, we find out that Paul went to a different place. This time it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Okay, so now we find out that the location is not always all that important. We find out that people gather in synagogues. Sometimes they gather in the temple. Sometimes they gather uh, at a river. And right here, we find another place, at least where preaching took place, was marketplace. So whether it was in a synagogue or if it was in a marketplace, the same message was proclaimed. That message was the good news about Jesus Christ. And the lesson for us, of course, is the need to proclaim the gospel message. But another thing you might be wondering at this point is, um, do we have to do it the same way that they did it? Like, do we need to find a synagogue, a temple, a river, or a marketplace in order to proclaim the message? Well, I believe what we will find is 
there's a variety of different places of worship. But what they do together doesn't change. So do we have to do it the same way? Well, they didn't always do it the same way in the, in the times of the Bible. So why should we expect it to be the same for us? But still, with that question, I guess you could phrase it another way. So let's take a look at it. Does our worship have to look the same? Well, when the apostle to the Gentiles was around Gentiles, he became like the Gentiles. He looked like a Gentile. And he did some things a little different, you know, kind of like what a Gentile would do. However, when Paul, who was sometimes around Gentiles, whenever he was around Jews, he acted like a Jew. And he followed certain customs that, you know, were within reason he followed those customs. And of course, he didn't do anything that went uh, against uh, following God. But I mean, really, does any of uh, going by the customs of the, the law of Moses, does any of that really go against following Jesus Christ or following God? I mean, it was a law that was given uh, to the people in order to follow it. Now, Paul makes it very plain, and we do need to, to kind of make this distinction, though. We're not going to get into great detail with this, but we do need to at least mention it here. That if we try to find our salvation in the law, it's going to fail. It's not capable of saving us. Only Jesus Christ is capable of saving us. However, if we choose to follow certain customs or, or follow certain things that are in the law of Moses, there's nothing wrong with that. We see the example of it dozens of times in the scriptures. When Paul was around Jews, he acted like the Jews. If you want to look at an example of that, we can find how he responded whenever he went to the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 21, this is a conversation that Paul has with the uh, early church leaders here. Verses 20 through 26 now. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So here in this passage, although it might seem strange to us living in this time, I mean, we're not likely going to experience the same things like what Paul did. I mean, Paul was living whenever things were changing. And what Paul was doing was he was showing that he still had the same history. He still had the same background. And you might even say he still has the same respect for the law of Moses that the, his fellow Jews would have as well, because that law came from God. Obviously, he wouldn't do these same things in a Gentile setting. We, we don't have any example that he really did that type of thing, because the, the laws, so to speak, that the Gentiles would be following aren't laws that came directly from God. And they're they worship sometimes in different ways. So there had to be some modifications, and those are kind of mentioned there in verse 25. 
But when it comes to Israel, we notice that there still is this root of Judaism in which Christianity comes from. So early church worship, it looked different from time to time. And our worship, it can look a little different too. You know, sometimes it might look a little different for a period of time. For example, right now. You know, right now we're worshiping God and we're kind of learning that worshiping God, uh, kind of what that means, what it looks like. And that's why I want us to see these examples from the church, especially the early church on how they worship, because I believe we can apply a lot of these things in our everyday lives right here and right now. And notice that, yeah, we're worshiping God different than we have in times past. But the important thing is that we still are worshiping him in the spirit and in truth. Ready, Lord, ready, Lord, I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord, I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord, I want to be ready for the judgment day. When the bridegroom comes, will I be there to meet him in the air? And will my lamp be burning bright? Will my Lord find me prepared? Yes, I'll be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready for the judgment day. If the Master comes today, will I be in or cast away? And will he find me faithful there? Will my Lord find me prepared? Yes, I'll be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready for the judgment day. If the Lord should choose delay, will I be true until that day? And will my oil be plenty then? Will my Lord find me prepared? Yes, I'll be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready, Lord, ready, Lord. I want to be ready for the judgment day.